and welcome to the Watford Jazz Junction podcast. I'm Chris. And today I'm chatting with James Morrison. High notes and upside down notes coming your way. Hello, hello, hello and welcome to our finale episode number six of series three of the Watford Jazz Junction podcast. A show that knows no jazz fear dares to rewind cassettes, flips to the B-side, and generally hangs around after the show's finished. Now, today, I am delighted to be joined by saxophonist, trombonist, tuba and euphonium player, clarinetist, double bass, guitar and piano player, oh, and he also plays trumpet a bit, a legend, a cross-continental ambassador for jazz far and wide, fanfarer of athletes, driver of cars, fast and slow, and peddler of improvisations with their own inbuilt parallels and backing accompaniment, it's all round fabuloso James Morrison. James, hello, how are you? Hello, Chris, I'm very well. Thank you. I was listening to that introduction going, oh my goodness, I'd like to meet him. That's fabulous. <laughs> I'll have to get you to do that for me more often. <laughs> he sounds all right, doesn't he? So uh, how are things down under? What's the weather like? The weather is beautiful. Um, I'm not in Sydney where it's pouring down and has been for days and it's flooding. I'm down in South Australia in a little place called Mount Gambier. And I don't think we've seen a cloud for about two weeks now. And it's a nice temperature, about 27 degrees. And it's just not supposed to be summer, but it is. So loving it. Well, you're no stranger to the shores of Europe. So you'll know that we're covered under grey clouds and feeling very jealous. Yeah, well, you know, that's the main reason I said all that, actually. <laughs> so I remember watching you for the first time on a late night of recording that I made on VHS tape of you playing at the Montreux Jazz Festival. I think it was around about 1990. And you did this most beautiful rendition of There'll Never Be Another You on trombone. And then you appeared later on next to Dizzy Gillespie. It was unbelievable, James, even if it was just comparing your checkered suit jacket with Dizzy's khaki chic shirt. <laughs> but bottom line is, you must have some jazz stories that could even compete with mine from the Suffolk Youth Jazz Orchestra of the early 90s. So what's it like having played with Dizzy Gillespie? Well, I don't know. I just have to say, I don't know if I want to go up against the Suffolk Youth Jazz Orchestra, but I'll have a go. <laughs> um, it was amazing. I mean, I grew up listening to Dizzy. He was a hero of mine from, I was about eight, I think, when I first heard him. And I thought, I wonder if one day I'll meet him. You know, that would be amazing. Or at least see him play live, which is not a given, being down in Australia in those days. He may never have come. But, uh, you know, some years later there I was, as you say, at Montreux. Um, playing together and uh, it was amazing there was one time in that night I'll never forget where we were trading fours you know that great jazz tradition he plays a bit I play a bit he plays a bit and of course it's not a competition Um, but uh, I'm trading fours with him and and in the middle of it this voice in my head said you're trading fours with Dizzy Gillespie you idiot. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> like, this is not going to end well. Um, but, um, of course, the other voice in my head said, this is awesome. You're trading fours with Dizzy Gillespie. Have fun. It was um, it was amazing. And he was... Um, I, I saw Dizzy a number of times over, over the years, and um, that was the first time we'd uh, we'd played together on, on a big performance. And uh, that one was recorded. But, but I... I I was always so... I first met him some years before that. I was 16 years old. I'd gone with a school band to the Monterey, not Montreux, Monterey Festival in California. Yeah. And um, we were there to, um, you know, as school bands sometimes do, sort of play, you know, in the foyer, in the foyer of nowhere um, sort of thing. And um, 
And then uh, afterwards they said, would you like to meet Dizzy Gillespie? Because obviously they would have said, well, there's a school all the way from Australia. And he met us and, um, and uh, you know, he said, any questions? And we all just looked and thought, what do you ask Dizzy Gillespie? And so uh, it wasn't me. One of the guys said, how do you play like that? Which, of course, too open a question. And Dizzy said, well, and we all hung on every word. And this is what he said. And it, it, this is for real. Dizzy Gillespie answering the question, how do you play like that? Because he just played. He said, well, you got to learn all your scales, all the modes. you got to learn every bebop head in every key. And we're going, my goodness, this has all got a lot of work to do. And he kept going. It was quite a long list. And when he was finished, he burst out laughing. And he said, then you just forget all that shit and play. <laughs> and um, we... We, I just loved it. And that look on his face and that laughter and that way he was just having us on, be, I, I sort of realized that's what he's like all, all of the time. And every other time I managed to see him and was lucky enough to spend any time with him, um, he was like that. It was like he was constantly at a party. You know, that was the atmosphere. And he just took that onto the stage. He took it into the music. He just full of joy and loved it. So that was, um, that was great. And to get to play with him, you know, in a serious setting like that. So I'd wonderful. love to know, really, just a bit about your jazz journey. So up until we get to Dizzy, I mean, how did you get into jazz in the first place? Oh, just your your typical way, you know. I'm I'm being facetious. I mean, for any for any sort of young lad from Burrower in Western New South Wales, um, you know, in the middle of the outback, the usual way of getting into jazz: get out of Burrower. <laughs> <laughs> my my dad's my dad's a preacher, and we moved around quite a bit. And um, we moved to the big city. And when we went to Sydney for the first time, I'd never seen a brass instrument. There were no brass instruments in Burrower. The only instruments in Burrower was a piano in the hall and the organ in the church. And my mum used to play the organ in the church. And that was the sum total of my musical experience with live music. We got to Sydney, and um, not only did I see a brass band at school, which just knocked me out of all these instruments, I thought, this, now this stuff's cool. But, um, but the local church we went to there was much bigger than anything I'd seen, and they had a few ministers. Dad was only one of them, and one of the others had been uh, to the United States, spent quite a, lot, quite a lot of time there, and he brought back some of the church experience he'd had there. And, and you know what I'm about to say. At that point in the sermon... And as a young preacher's son, I'd heard lots of sermons, and I knew how they went. There's the bit where his voice gets louder and louder, and then he bangs the, the Bible on the pulpit, and that's the point. Not this guy. He got to that point where he should have done the Bible bang on the pulpit, and instead, he pulled a trombone out from behind the pulpit and what? launched into a blues. The, the curtains behind him opened, and there was a gospel band there. And I said, "Hallelujah!" I said, "This is now we're talking." Yeah, it was the first time I'd really heard anything that approximated jazz. It was gospel music, but you know, it was that gospel blues, and of course, drenched with the blues and jazz. And they had a jazz band at the church, and so I was introduced to it. You know, funny enough, it sounds like I came from the south of the United States, but in Sydney, Australia, in church. And um, I quickly then, you know, um, took to it all. I joined the brass band at school. And uh, I mean, the rest, as they say, is history. I just wanted to play jazz. The moment I heard it, I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to play music that feels like that. So at that point, when you rock up in Sydney and you start seeing all these instruments and whatnot, I mean, it must have felt like a kid in a sweetie shop. But in terms of your approach to the world now, I know you do an awful lot in jazz education. Was it your sort of upbringing and your sort of lack of access at the beginning to, to instruments and jazz that, that sort of fires you on today or... Does that come from a different space and place? 
Look, that'd be a big part of it, but but I never thought of it as a lack of access. I mean, at the age of seven, you know, that's when we moved to Sydney. I was seven. I saw this live gospel band, so I thought I'm lucky. I've you know I've got great access. Look at this and bands to play in. And at nine, I started my first band of mine, my first jazz band. I had a quartet, and um, was trumpet, clarinet, bass, and drums. And first professional band. I mean, I had other bands before that, sure. of course, but. Um, yeah, quite seriously though, it was a professional band. The definition being you get paid to play. We had a job every Saturday morning playing down at the local supermarket and it wasn't busking or just playing on the street. They actually hired us to do it. And um, it was amazing. It was amazing. And each every Saturday I'd go down to do my gig at age nine and run the band and Call the tunes. What did they make you wear? Were you in like a waistcoat or something, or did you just rock up in your jeans? Uh, no, no, no. We had some fancy gear. You know, we had we had waistcoats. We had straw boaters. You know, the whole thing. Oh yeah, standard issue. Standard issue. We were a proper band, and um, and then I I started working nightclubs from the age of thirteen. So um, I just put a tuxedo on. No one asked what age I was, and if you're standing there with the band playing, you get away with it. Because um, in Australia, I don't know what, I can't remember what it is over there, but in Australia you had to be 18 to be in a, a licensed club. So I was a bit five years early. Uh, but um, yeah, I just started playing in nightclubs and playing in bands and dance bands. And uh, of course I had my own jazz band that developed and uh, we lost the straw boaters at some stage and the waistcoats, funny enough. And I'm here they're coming back. And um, <laughs> I just, uh, I, I think I went on the road. I was taken uh, taken under the wing of Don Burrows, one of the Australian greats, when I was 16. And from there, basically, you know, things really took off. Now, Don uh, sadly died last year, but had reached a fantastic age, right? But you say he took you under your wing. Was it like a mentor yeah. or something? Or Absolutely, yeah. I, I met Don uh, when I was 16. And um, I'd, I'd just gone to the Conservatorium of Music in Sydney. I thought I might go and do a jazz course and find out what all this stuff was that I was doing because I was doing everything by ear. I'd never really had lessons and, and I, I was having a great time, but I thought I need to find out why all this works. Yeah, yeah. So I went there and um, that's where I met Don and he asked me to join his group. And yeah, he was very much a mentor for, for you know, for, for the rest of my life and um, it was great, you know, many, many years later, decades later, to be able to take him on the road with my band. Fantastic. And, um, yeah, so it was the end of an era last year. He was uh, 91. Wow. And um, he'd, he'd played up till not long before then. So he had dementia, um, but the one thing he could remember how to do was to play. You see, there you go, kids. If you want a long and happy life, just play jazz. It'll get you to become a, a nonagenarian before you know it. Now... Before we get deeper into your music, Top Gear, what's that all about? <laughs> well, I've always been a bit of a car guy, as we call them, and um, apparently the term rev head now is, is not acceptable, so I'm a car person. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I was a rev head <laughs> and always loved cars and um, got into some, some motor racing fairly early on. And uh, then in the early 90s, long before Top Gear existed, I um, was on a TV show in Australia called Behind the Wheel, which 
you're going to laugh at this. I hope you are going <laughs> to laugh at this. Got taken off the air after a year because we were being too silly. Okay. Like, you know, spinning spinning the wheels and crashing things and mucking around. Sound familiar? <laughs> like, we were just too far ahead of our time. When Top Gear came out, I saw it and I went, that's what we got taken off the air for doing, mucking around like that. And it's all right. It came full circle. I ended up as a host of Top Gear Australia. Unbelievable. Uh, eventually. So um, that was all good fun. And I, I still do uh, have things to do with cars. In fact, uh, this week I'm driving in the, the largest tarmac rally in the uh, Southern Hemisphere. Go on. Um, which is the Rally of Adelaide, and I'm driving for McLaren. So I wow. can't complain about that. And you have a McLaren parked in the garage, I presume? No, I don't. I'm driving for McLaren. They're actually getting me to drive their car. So um, there's only one thing better than taking your McLaren out and going driving in a rally, and that's taking someone else's McLaren <laughs> and driving it in a rally. <laughs> well, they must have a lot of faith in you. That's absolutely fantastic. Um, but again, for our, for our listeners, what, what would be the jazz car of choice, if you could have any car? Oh, a jazz car of choice. Um... Do you know, look, I am, and I'm not just saying this because of where you're sitting, but I'm a bit partial to British cars. Right. Um, I also am to, I also, I do like the Mark, the Mercedes-Benz. I've had lots of old ones. I love the old classic ones. But um, I've always been a bit of a Jaguar person too. And um, yes, and uh, I've even had, you know what? I've had one car and now it sounds, I'm, I'm, I'm going to admit now this sounds outrageous by 2021 standards, but go back to the early 90s, and this wasn't so out there. I bought myself an old Rolls-Royce convertible. What? And um, it sounds terribly expensive and fancy. Look, it wasn't cheap, but it wasn't that expensive. It was an old one, you know, and um, and I got this Rolls-Royce convertible because I thought it was so classic looking. It was bright red, and I put the number plates on it. You can have personalized plates. They said Bebop. So wow. I'm driving around in a red Rolls Royce convertible with Bebop on the number. As I said, today you'd look, and there are certain words we'd use to describe a person who did that, <laughs> um, which which we won't say on the podcast. But um, but back then that was just quite. That was very cool. It was very hip. No problem. So that was a very jazz car cruising around in the open top. Uh, you know, Royce with the uh, um, sometimes with the band in the car. It was it was a lot of fun. Oh, James Morrison, you've taken it to the next level. I love it. So I have flipped back to the early days of your discography. Ah. So bear with me. 1987, postcards from down under. Lots of ballads, very wistful, mm-hmm. almost like you're reaching out. And it includes this beautiful track called Wet Monday yes. that just makes you well up. And you don't need lyrics. It's, it's all there. And just when you think it's all ballads, it signs off with Sydney by Night. Bam! Prog rock, slap bass. It's wicked. And then you jump forwards half a decade and you get Man of Dangerous, which is a real mix of this beautiful stuff. But for me, the, the tracks that stand out on that are What a Friend We Have in Jesus, St. Yep. James Infirmary and Amazing Grace. And then mm. the next year, 93, you've got To The Max with Ray Brown on bass. Not a bad uh, backing, uh, backing man. Um, as again, it's another awesome album. Everything about it, just straight ahead joy. So that's really just a really long intro to ask you what your influences are. It appears to me that the role of nation and state is in there, but also so is religion. What what influences your, your pen when you're writing? As I've said, I, I, I grew up in the church, so of course the gospel music is in there. And um, that that certainly shows through some of those hymns and those things that I grew up with and uh, and that feeling of that music. 
and I've done a number of since then a number of just completely gospel albums you know of, of all my favorite sort of uh, tunes in the, in that genre um, but also in there is some of those early influences there's of course the bebop influence comes from Dizzy um, I've always been a huge fan of bands that really swing and a big fan of the Oscar Peterson trio and that you know is always there with me that feel so of course I, Ray Brown was always a hero of mine and when I finally met him uh, in the 80s, and then we started touring together, we did a number of albums together, and uh, we're on the road together quite a lot. He's, I sort of guested with his trio um, for a number of years, and that was amazing. Not only was I now playing with that sound that I'd grown up listening to, that groove, you know, because he was, you know, but we know Oscar's mm. trio in, in, in the real, um, you know, iconic version of it, but, um, but also it was a connection. And you could imagine... Being in this island in the South Pacific and growing up there on the other side of the world from where all the action was, that's how it felt as a young jazz musician, um, to suddenly be on the road and hanging out with someone like Ray Brown all the time, I could just ask and did all about it. You know, what was 52nd Street like? What was Philadelphia like when you and Miles and all those guys were there? What was this? What was that? And he just, of course, you know, told me so much. And I just felt like that was my connection to that whole other world that I wasn't part of. And so the, the music I knew, but just sort of um, being with someone real life who was there for all of that was, was amazing. Apart from, of course, the fact that when you got on the bandstand, it's not encountered a tune in, Ray Brown was on the bass. <laughs> not, Pressure. Not too shabby. Yes, yeah, no, it was just great, though, that, that, that groove and that feel, that sound. It was, um, yeah, something that I'll, I'll never forget. So, James, if I just ask a a question within the context of your influences your your father was a methodist preacher right and um yep my grandparents i had one minister and, and three preachers amongst them so the, they were a pretty religious lot but in a very gentle way to my mm. mind what methodism seemed to teach them and the values that are instilled in me and others i know who, who've who've you know flirted with methodism over their lives because of a family connection or whatever is that sense of standing up for something else you're slightly outside of the of the system you're not irreverent but you, it's a very inclusive uh, space and it's if you're excluded well there's a home here for for everyone in, in, in that sort of sense of belief and this isn't yeah. at all a religious uh, journey that, I, that i'm trying to take you on but I, i'm really interested when you talk about being you know there you are in south australia being again on the outside and finding this connection into mainstream uh, u.s jazz through through ray brown of all people the sense of being the something else on the outside has that driven you or have you, have you always just gone well that's just circumstance i'm amazing <laughs> look it's a it's a question i've never really addressed um you can't ask questions i have all my answers ready you've got to uh, stick to the script Oh, I'm sorry, James. Um, yes, no, no, no. Look, no, I'm, I, I jest. Um, it's, it's wonderful to be asked. I've had done a lot of interviews. I never really thought about it in those terms about being an outsider. You know, objectively, what are the chances of becoming part of the jazz world? And you know, I've had the great good fortune to play with so many of my well, so many of my record collection. I mean, Ray Brown, um, you know, is one of them. I had played with so many great people what were the chances of that happening for some kid from outback australia like almost zero so objectively looking at it you go this is so unlikely but of course that didn't seem like that to me at the age of seven when i first heard jazz i went oh i'm gonna do that 
It didn't, wasn't about, gee, I hope I can or I'll try or what drives me. I just said, I'm going to play. And I remember announcing, not to a great audience, just mum and dad, but um, I announced that um, But while I, was, while I was still seven, I'm going to uh, spend my life going around the world playing the trumpet and playing jazz. And they said, that's nice, dear, eat your peas. <laughs> um, so, um, but I do remember I announced that one, one night and said, that's what I'm going to do. And, and it wasn't like a struggle. This one, it didn't seem like a big challenge. Just I've decided what I think I'll do. And um, it never occurred to me that that might not yeah. happen. So, um, yeah, so in that sense, I did feel the disconnection, like the I'm on the other side of the world, how are we going to work this? You know, I did feel that. But it wasn't can I, it was how. How are we going to do this? Not can this be done? There was, there was never a question. Um, yeah, it just seemed to me that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And along the lines of what you've said with that, um, religious upbringing and uh, and the, particularly the Methodist upbringing, there was this feeling that you have a purpose, and that was mine. So it's just going to happen. Amazing, and uh, it seems to have been so. Absolutely, and uh, we all have our weapons of choice for preaching, and I think you found yours. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you another question, which I yes. suspect you've never been asked. So I know you've played uh, the Village Vanguard, the Blue Note, Ronnie's, uh, New Morning in Paris, the Royal Albert Hall, and Opera Houses. You played for the Queen, Presidents Bush and Clinton, the latter of whom still has an outstanding invite to this show. And you wrote a fanfare that you played for the opening of the 2000 Olympic Games. And yet, James, and yet, we still Uh-oh. have not seen you play at the Rival Volunteer in Watford. Why? I knew this was going to come up at some stage. I've been yeah, dreading this for years. Yeah, The big question. Well, it's just, OK, I don't want to like throw it back in your face, but I haven't been asked. Oh, brother. I'm sorry, it definitely got lost in the post. It definitely got lost in the post. I will be there. Well, yes, one day when I'm invited, when I finally make it and I'm invited, I will definitely be there. <laughs> there'll be a pint there'll be a pint waiting for you as well. <laughs> all jokes aside though, I do love and I do spend a lot of time going to all sorts of regional areas all over the world. And of course in Australia we have lots of those out of the way places. I'm not saying Watford's out of the way, but you know what I mean. When you when you <laughs> listed when you listed Ronnie's and the you know the New Morning and and, and you yeah, know yeah, yeah. Um, the Blue Note, it's normally not on that list. Um, but no, I do love going to lots of you know places to, to play, and I, I've been very lucky. I've been all all over the place, just not to Watford. Now, hold on. It's only listeners' question time, so our listener has sent in a question for you. Ian Bramold, a good friend of the show and our festival, and a wonderful octogenarian trad trumpeter who I'm sure won't mind me sharing his age, has asked two questions. His first question is, why are you such a clever fella? And his second question is, in discussion with his cousin in Perth, do you or do you not play the didgeridoo? Okay. Um, why am I such a clever fella? If he's referring to... I'm going to pick what he's referring to. I'm going to just assume that it's not necessarily how I play any particular instrument, but that I play a number of instruments. That's Correct. sort of usually called clavier. Um, I didn't know any better. <laughs> had I had a teacher, they would have said to me, you've got to concentrate on one or you won't be any good at any of them and all those sorts of things people get told. Seriously, I just heard instruments that, oh, I like the sound of that. I think I'll try that. It didn't occur to me that that should be difficult and that there were any issues with it, so I just did it. And um, now I realise what a nightmare. Huh. Um, but, um, but no, cause quite seriously, uh, speaking technically for a moment, those of the audience who understand the words like embouchure, things like that, I, I, don't, I don't 
it would be difficult to have a trombone embouchure and a saxophone embouchure and a trumpet embouchure and all these things. And people say, how do you do that? I don't. Okay. I don't have a trumpet embouchure. I don't have any of those embouchures, even a trumpet one. What I have is a flexible embouchure. Ah. And so to me, it feels like one thing. Right from the word go, I start, I didn't play trumpet for 10 years, then take something else up. I started playing a lot of instruments right at the beginning, very, very close succession. So I never developed one embouchure. I just developed a flexibility, and that felt normal to me. And I'll let you in on a little secret, um, which I, I don't widely publicise, but... <laughs> in which case, James, you're absolutely fine saying it on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I set you up for that. Um, is this that I I actually, if I'm going to have an embouchure problem and people look, oh, look, you just switch from saxophone to trombone, how do you do that? That's easy. My embouchure problem, if I have one, is playing the one instrument for too long. Yeah. If I do a whole, if, I'm, if I've got a gig to do where I'm only playing trumpet, the best thing I can do in the middle of it somewhere is if I've got a break is quickly play some trombone or saxophone or whatever out the back to keep the flexibility. Um, yeah, I can I can have an embouchure problem if I play the one instrument for too long. So I really have developed that flexible embouchure and need to look after that. In the same way that someone who just played trumpet or cornet, if they blow a bit of trombone, you know, they mess their embouchure up for a little while. If I just play trumpet and cornet, I'll mess my embouchure up for a little while. Isn't that strange? Yeah, but variety is the spice of life. Variety is. So that answers to his first question. Now the second question. Can you play the ditch? Let's say. Can I play the ditch? I can play the didge. Ah, uh, yes. Mm, yeah, I can play the didge. I have a didge that I was I was given. It's little little known fact, but um, I did a lot of work up in the northern um, part of Queensland, up the far north, uh, with a, a large uh, indigenous community up there. Um, when I was running a thing called the Queensland Music Festival, um, the upshot of it all was we started all sorts of music programs and, and got lots of people up there playing music and set up bands for them, and it was great. And they were very um, grateful for all that. And so they adopted me into the uh, the mob up there, the tribe up there. Now, the reason I tell you that is that means officially I'm allowed to play the didgeridoo. Um, oh, look, technically anyone can play the didgeridoo, but it's it's considered, you know, culturally not, not such a, a thing that, you know, people um, of my heritage, Scottish, should be running around doing. But having been adopted into the tribe, I'm officially um, allowed to play the didgeridoo. So I have a very nice one. I'll tell you what, though, if you want to mess up your trumpet, trumpet embouchure, try didge. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a big mouthpiece. Blow a lot and hope. Yeah. Well, yeah, yes, there's a tiny bit more to it than that, but that'll do, yes. Really? Yeah. <laughs> right. So, James Morrison, my set question. How do you find the balance between sensational and spiritual? Discuss. Ah. Well, see, that, that question assumes some things that... I may not necessarily go along with, like that this balance is necessary or that it needs to be um, uh, a balance. I actually find that these things, rather than being, because balance suggests that they're some way opposites or on different sides of something. Too much spirituality, you won't be sensational. Too sensational, you won't be spiritual. In actual fact, I think the more spiritual, and whether we're talk, whatever way we want to take that, if we're talking about the feeling in the music and the reasons you play it, the more you can actually connect with that, the more sensational you will be. So I don't need a balance between them. Mm. I need more of one so that I can have more of the other. Textbook. Textbook answer, even though even though you couldn't have no. looked it up. <laughs> Wonderful. Hang on, did I read that correctly? Yes. Now. <laughs> oh, dear. Don't give away all our secrets. None of this was planned. Um, so... We'd love to know, James, what are your top three 
favourite or recommended albums of all oh. time? What's on yeah, the turntable? Well, okay. Um, the first one, yes, is Errol Garner, Concert by the Sea. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's a special album. I love Errol anyway, but that album is very special. That really captured the essence of, of Errol and of that style of jazz and just the joy that's in it. So let's go with that. Concert by the Sea. Locked in at number one, sir. Locked in at number one. Uh, number two is is Oscar Peterson trio, Night Train. Because that's the quintessential, like, if, if aliens came, and I know this is a well <laughs> an overused... I think, but if aliens came and they said, "What is swing?" We'd go stand by, listen to this. That's what we call swing. For me, it's that quintessential thing that got me into loving that kind of music. Um, was Oscar Peterson and that album, Night Train. Um, so there's number two. Now you'd think that I just have a plethora of them there, and just but I'm being careful because I've only got one more, and I just don't know which one to go with, and. I got to say, I'm torn between some things. Like I should make sure certain instruments are represented, but you know what? I'm just going to have to go, go with this one. It's Dizzy Gillespie, and the album is called "The Greatest Trumpet of Them All." Yeah, and it's him with his octet, um, with ben, with Benny Golson did all the charts on it. And uh, there's a track on there called "Blues After Dark," and again, that's just so cool and so what that music is about. And it's Dizzy. We'll take that. They are locked in. And that, my friends, is a classic top three. So, I'm going to introduce you now, James, to our house band. It used to be All a right. septet, then was an, oct- an octet, and is now a non-s, I think. Anyway, we've got Vi Red on alto, Mark Nightingale on trombone, and Dizzy Gillespie on trumpet. And there in the back, we've got Duke Ellington, John Patitucci on bass, and Christian McBride on bass, and Brian Blade on drums, of course. And then we've got Leanne Carroll on vocals and backup piano, and London-based uh, guitarist Shirley Tete. So, I'm a generous soul, like all of the souls who listen to the Watford Jazz Junction, and our gift, our gift to you, is to let you change up to one of the players in that band. Oh, and my it's goodness. it's not getting rid of them. It's allowing them to have a break. Who oh. would you like to edit? Oh, my goodness. That's not very good. <laughs> I thought, I've got to pick someone to not play out of that list. I don't want to get rid of anyone, anyone. but <laughs> seeing that's the job at hand, my dear mate, who we, we were on the road together for some years and is uh, such a, an amazing player and an inspiration to me, nonetheless he's a friend so I can get away with it, is Mark Nightingale. And because everyone there is so awesome, I want to play with them. So I was going to say, Mark, take a break. I'll come in with my bone and I'll take over. So I get to play with all those people. <laughs> Do it! It's finally happened. We have subbed in a musician that we're talking to into the band. And Mark Nightingale, that many have said is untouchable, has been swapped. And I know he's going to be cool with that. And we're going to have James Morrison back up front with Dizzy Gillespie alongside Byred. This is a sick front line. Thank you, James. <laughs> You're welcome. And tell Mark I'm sorry, but it, I know he likes a break every now and then. Uh, he'll, he'll, he'll understand. So, firstly, I'd like to say thank you for your audition for the Ten Bells Rag Band based here in London. We'll get back to you. We currently have quite a good trumpeter. <laughs> um, but moreover, James, we're absolutely made up that, that you took the time to chat to us today. It's been awesome. As always, you can get in touch with uh, the show via Twitter at forward slash Jazz Watford or drop us an email at watfordjazzlive at gmail.com, so long as you say nice things. And thank you to everyone who's tuning in to listen. And if you're a first-timer, don't forget to subscribe. 
Next time, we venture ever fearlessly into Series 4, and we'll be in conversation with Anne Frankenstein, DJ on Worldwide FM and every day on Jazz FM here in the UK, and keeper, dare I say, of one of the most mellifluous voices in broadcast jazz. Meanwhile, don't forget to keep your ears fresh and always connect with something new. So goodbye, dear listener. Goodbye, James. Bye-bye. And goodbye from me. Take care. Bye. Bye.